We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to discover for ourselves who Jesus really was, what he really said, and what he really did. It's our goal to know him firsthand for ourselves in his word. Last week we got to listen in as Jesus taught his disciples about what matters in eternity and what doesn't. And in verse 15 of Luke 12, the chapter we're in today, we got this incredible line from Jesus. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. In other words, eternity's not gonna be about how much stuff you have, so stop wasting your life striving for stuff and instead pursue things that will matter in eternity. This week, Jesus is going to address some of the concerns that he knows his disciples and us still have because sometimes we hear Jesus say something like, don't make your life about chasing stuff. And what we're really thinking is, hey, hey, that sounds like a nice idea, Jesus. Sounds great, but back here in real life, in the real world, my whole life is going to collapse if I don't chase after money because I don't know if you know this, God, but it's sort of how the world works. And Jesus is gonna speak to that concern today, the fear that our lives will fall apart if we really do prioritize the kingdom of God over the kingdom of this world. The English word worry comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means to strangle. It's different to other emotions. It means to strangle, and many of us can relate to that feeling. Many of us have been through something like that, or we're going through it right now, a season of worry and anxiety where we just feel strangled and choked on an emotional and spiritual level. Worry has been described as a trickle of fear running through the mind, which eventually cuts a crevice so deep it will drain all other thoughts away. It's a trickle of fear running through the mind, which eventually cuts a crevice so deep it will drain all other thoughts away. We've been there, haven't we? We all know what that feels like. So let's hear from Jesus. We're gonna jump in in verse 25 of Luke 12. It says, then he said to his disciples, therefore I say to you, underline do not, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Now again, when Jesus says do not, is it a suggestion or is it a command? It's a command, do not worry. And he's gonna tell us why in the next few verses. This is your first fill-in. Jesus commands his disciples to not worry about the necessities of life. Jesus commands his disciples to not worry about the necessities of life. That's where we're gonna start. And I don't wanna get sidetracked on a completely different subject, but I do wanna simply point this out right at the beginning of our study. Jesus says, do not worry. He doesn't say, do not plan. He says, do not worry. Don't let the future cause you to worry. I believe in Jesus and I trust him with my future, but I have life insurance. If you're married, if you have kids, you should have life insurance. It is good to plan, but it's not good to worry about the future. God's not against planning for the future. He's against worrying about the future and trusting our plans more than we trust him. And I say that because I've experienced the tragedy of a friend in the Lord passing away and leaving behind a widow and he didn't have life insurance because his attitude was God will just take care of me. And the truth is sometimes God's way of doing that is through good planning and people who are gifted with wisdom to know how to plan well. So don't discount that. Verse 23, Jesus says, Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. You know, worry lies to us, and worry deceives us, because worry makes us believe that whatever we're worried about is the single most important thing in the world, what life is all about. What most people worry about is food and clothing. It's not having enough. And just as we learned last week, life's not about how much stuff you have Life's also not about food and clothing. Food and clothing are a means, but they're not the meaning of life. Glorifying God is the meaning of life, but worry will creep in and cause us to obsess over lesser things. And compared to glorifying God, everything else is a lesser thing. Not an unimportant thing, 
but a lesser thing. So write this down. Worry lies to us by telling us that whatever we're worried about is the most important thing in our lives. Worry says this is the most important thing in your life, and that process plays out in all of us when we begin to worry. In verse 24, Jesus says, consider the ravens, underline ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? It was said when somebody did the calculation that if you took the richest man in the world, the richest man in the world, you took everything he had, you liquidated every asset he had, he would not have enough money to buy food to feed all the birds in the world for one day. Couldn't do it for one day. The richest man in the world. Keep that in mind. So remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and they're Jewish. And to the Jew, a raven is considered an unclean animal under the Old Testament law, like a pig. They're basically considered to be rat birds. That's how little value they placed on ravens. So think of this too. When ravens die, they're dead. There's no afterlife. There's no ravens flying around in heaven. Jesus points to the ravens and in essence, he asks his disciples, have any of you ever seen a starving raven? an emaciated raven. Any of you guys ever seen that? And you know what, none of them had. And neither of you, you've never seen that. Property market in Vancouver is out of control. We need $50,000 to put a down payment on a house an hour away from downtown. Have the ravens started starving yet? When interest rates shoot up, when the cost of living soars, if unemployment goes up to 20% one day, will you see a starving raven? You will not see a starving raven. Jesus says, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? Your father in heaven takes care of the rat birds of the earth that were not made in his image and will not live forever. How much more valuable do you think you are to him? You're a son, you're a daughter of your heavenly father. And what I love about this is, is Jesus is asking us to be rational and logical. He's not asking us to use our imaginations. He's saying just be rational and logical. He's asking us to give spiritual facts and truths the same weight, the same gravity that we give material facts and truths. So we look around us and we say, this is reality. I'm in this difficult situation. This is reality. This is what the numbers say is in my bank account right now. These are my bills. And Jesus is saying, that is true. All I'm asking you to do is to give the same weight to spiritual realities, the things you cannot see, that you give to the things that you can. Because those spiritual realities are no less true. Jesus isn't saying, I want you to imagine, I want you to pretend, I want you to think about. He's saying they are as true as your material reality. If we really are sons and daughters of the living God, and he really does take care of the ravens, if those are facts, forget faith. Doesn't logic say he'll take care of us? He will. Of course he will. So write this down. Jesus asks his disciples to give spiritual truths the same weight they give material truths. The fact that your Father in heaven loves you is not a lesser truth than the difficulty you're going through right now. It's a greater truth. In verse 25, Jesus says, and which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Cubit's about 18 inches, so he's saying, if you're short, you wish you were taller, is worrying gonna make you taller? We know that worrying can't add a single hair to your head. In fact, the opposite is true. Those of you who have kids will understand. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? It's a profound question from Jesus because we tend to look at worrying as a productive activity. It's a real active verb. It's an activity. If things are tight, I should be worrying because it's the right thing to do. Jesus points out, hey, if you're worried because you have no money, all worrying is gonna do is mean that you have no money, no sleep, high blood pressure, and stress. Worrying in and of itself accomplishes absolutely nothing. Kari Ten Boom said this, I put it on your outline. This is an incredible quote. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. 
it empties today of its strength. It doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. And we might say, well, worrying leads to doing something about the problem. And I'd ask this, do we really need to reach the point of crippling anxiety and loss of sleep before we realize there's a problem? I don't think so. And I think what Jesus would suggest is that when we recognize a problem, we take it to him in prayer. We ask him for help, and then we listen to what he says. If there's something we need to do that we're not doing, we trust that he's gonna reveal it to us through his spirit or through his people. And then we take action, but Worrying in and of itself, it accomplishes nothing. So write this down. Worrying does not give us the power to change what we're worried about. Worrying doesn't give us the power to change what we're worried about. Worrying is not a superpower. It's not like I need to spend some time worrying and then I'll have the power, the strength I need to confront my problem. It doesn't work that way. It'll take all your power away from you. It'll take all your strength away from you. Verse 26, Jesus keeps teaching and he says, If you then are not able to do the least, if you can't even make yourself taller by worrying, why are you anxious for the rest? Why are you worrying about everything else like worrying is gonna do something? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, so they don't do any work. And yet I say to you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon on his best day didn't look anywhere as good as the lilies of the field do. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And then underline this, O you of little faith, O you of little faith. I love that Jesus throws in that line for the listener, O you of little faith, because what he's saying is, I'm not asking a big thing of you when I ask you to believe that your heavenly Father will take care of you. This is not a monumental faith step I'm asking you to take. I'm just asking you to look around you and and recognize the reality of the way the world is and acknowledge the reality of who you are in Christ, that you're a son, you're a daughter of God. Just look around you. But Jesus has put his finger on the problem with this one phrase. Oh, you of little faith. They have a faith problem. Write that down. Worry is really a faith problem. Worry is a faith problem. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So worry and having an anxious mind are sins? Really? Yeah. Because they're a result of a lack of faith in God. And Jesus is explicit Do not worry. Very soon we're gonna hear him say, do not have an anxious mind. Worry and having an anxious mind are sins that the Christian is not allowed to tolerate in their life. Despite what Jesus' disciples see God doing in his creation all around them, despite the promises of the Bible, despite what they claim to believe about having a father in heaven, it hasn't actually trickled down into their thinking yet. They know these things to be true up here, but they don't know them to be true down here yet. It hasn't made its way 18 inches from the head to the heart. They have a faith problem. They believe in God, but they don't believe God. So Jesus paints a picture using the lilies of the field, these gorgeous flowers that we look at and say, how beautiful. And Jesus says, do they spend all night working and sewing clothes for themselves or does the Lord just make it happen? And he points out that all plant life, just like the raven's lives, is temporal. All the plants get burned up or die sooner or later. You see, wood was scarce in many parts of Israel, so they would gather and dry plants and grasses and they would sort of compact it into a log of sorts and then burn it in their ovens. All plant life, no matter how beautiful or stunning, is gonna get burnt up or die sooner or later. We're gonna live forever. We're gonna live forever. Doesn't it stand to reason that God would be much more concerned with how we're clothed. If you haven't had the opportunity to parent a little girl, I can tell you that a slam dunk gift for any little girl is a princess dress. It just is, I've yet to meet a little girl that doesn't like putting on a princess dress. They slip on that thing, they twirl around in front of the mirror. If it's a really good dress, you know, then it like flares out and this thing becomes enormous and they just twirl and they love it, they love it. 
Listen, here's what we know. That dress is not going to fit them in six months. The dress is probably not going to be wearable in six months. And we didn't buy that dress because we sat down and thought, what is the most responsible use of my money? A princess dress for my daughter. Why did we buy that dress? Because we love our daughters. We love our daughters. And because we love to see them happy and it blesses us to see them enjoying a blessing. And we are not better parents than our heavenly father. We do not love our kids more than he loves us, his kids. We can trust that he loves us. He loves better than we do. He tells us over and over and over again in his word and he shouts it from the cross and the grave. Verse 29, Jesus says, and do not, underline do not, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have, and then underline, an anxious mind, an anxious mind. Not a suggestion, but a command. Jesus forbids his disciples from worrying about having their basic needs met or having an anxious mind. So write this down. Jesus commands his disciples to not have an anxious mind. He commands them not to have an anxious mind. When we're doing those things, we're in sin because we're rejecting a direct command from the Lord Jesus. We're choosing to walk in rebellion instead. We're finding more comfort in our worry than we find in the promises of God. And here's what you can always trust about God. If God calls us to do something, it means he's given us the means to do it. So if God calls us to not worry or be anxious, then it means he's provided the means for us to not worry or be anxious. And we're experiencing some of those means right now in his words. It's allowing Jesus through his word to correct our wrong thinking with the truth of the scripture. Jesus is giving us the reasons right here to not worry or be anxious. So take in his word, choose to believe it. And when you forget it, the Holy Spirit will remind you. When the Holy Spirit does it, listen to the Holy Spirit, not your emotions. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this either. So coming into verse 30, why are we not to worry or be anxious about our practical needs? Why? Verse 30, for all these things the nations of the world seek after. So from the perspective of the Jew, are the nations of the world believers or non-believers? They're non-believers. So when Jesus says, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, he's saying, Non-believers chase after all those things. Non-believers spend their whole life worrying about whether or not they're gonna have enough. They have an anxious mind and so their whole life becomes about getting money so that they can have their needs met and have peace. When you and I allow ourselves to worry and be anxious about this stuff, we are acting exactly the same way non-believers do. Exactly the same way. Let me be more blunt. We're acting as though there is no God, as though we do not have a heavenly Father in heaven who cares about us. We're acting exactly the same way as the people who don't even believe in God. Instead of being a witness to the truth by living and thinking differently to the world, we end up telling the world, hey, here's the deal. When push comes to shove and the pressure is on, I freak out just like you do. When things get difficult, my faith doesn't actually make me any different to you. And people look on and they go, well, and how do you even know that it's real? Because from where I'm standing, it doesn't seem to make any difference. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to embody the peace of the Holy Spirit, a peace that has nothing to do with what's going on in our lives. Because it doesn't come from what's going on in our lives. It comes from the Lord. We're supposed to exhibit the kind of peace that preaches to the world around us. The God of heaven is with me. He's for me. He takes care of me. That's why I sleep well at night. That's why I don't have anxiety. And that's why I don't worry about my future because it's in his hands. That's why I have peace. So write this down. When believers worry and have an anxious mind, they're acting like non-believers. When we worry and have an anxious mind, we're acting like non-believers. Do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. Now Jesus is going to say something that reassures me personally so much. Because our resistance 
to doing what Jesus asks here is is generally rooted in that attitude of, I don't know if you're aware of this, Jesus, but uh, my credit card company doesn't take faith as a form of payment. Neither does my landlord, neither does the Canadian Revenue Service. Last time I checked. So check out what Jesus says. Underline this whole thing. And your father knows that you need these things. Your father knows that you need these things. That blesses me. Because it means my heavenly father understands that I have bills to pay with dollars and cents. He understands that I live in a world where I need money to buy food. It means our heavenly father is not some heavenly distant abstract being so disconnected from our day-to-day lives. No, your heavenly father knows that you need these things. He gets it, he understands your practical needs. And here's God's offer. This is incredible. Here's how God offers to solve the dilemma of not getting caught up in the world's pursuit of stuff while still dealing with the fact that you need practical stuff to meet your practical needs. Here's his solution, verse 31. Underline the whole thing. But seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. I love the way the King James renders it by saying, but rather, I put it on your outline, you can underline rather. So that means instead of. So instead of chasing after all the things that those who don't believe in God chase after, instead of chasing after those things, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. What things? The things the rest of the world is chasing after. Security, a place to live, money to buy food. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what he's offering as a solution to the realities of life. Instead of chasing after the things of the world, chase after the kingdom of God. And as you choose to do that, God will take care of all those earthly things you need as well. God doesn't deny the reality that we have practical needs. He doesn't look down on us for caring about those needs. We say, God, I'm hungry. He doesn't go, You're concerned about such trivial things. He understands. But he wants us to understand that seeking him and seeking his kingdom is a higher priority. So he offers to take care of our practical needs if we will seek him first. It's an incredibly elegant and gracious solution. It's an unbelievable offer and an incredible opportunity for the believer who has enough faith to take Jesus up on this offer. Write this down. God knows and understands that we have practical needs, so he offers to meet them if we will prioritize him above them. He'll meet our practical needs if we will prioritize him above them. And I can't resist pointing this out while we're here. Does verse 31 say, but seek the kingdom of God and know as you lose your house, have your car repossessed, starve, are unable to afford medical treatment, and wander the streets naked and impoverished, I am greatly glorified. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. That's the poverty gospel. Jesus says, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Does it sound like God wants to bless your life? Absolutely, absolutely he wants to bless your life. You have a father in heaven who loves you. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel because it's not biblical, but I don't believe in the poverty gospel because it's not biblical either. We believe that God's greatest goal for each of us is that we would become more like his son, Jesus. That's the goal that trumps everything else. But after that, I wanna suggest to you that God does want you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Why? Because I always say, what's the alternative? That we serve a God who wants his kids to be sick, poor, and miserable? I have a hard time getting on board with that. Your heavenly Father wants to bless every single area of your life unless doing so would get in the way of you becoming more like Jesus. Why are most of us not millionaires? It would get in the way of most of us becoming more like Jesus. That's the truth. He wants to bless your life. If your life is not blessed in one area, then probably one of two things is true. We're not seeking first the kingdom of God, or if God were to fully bless that area, we would just pull away from him as we tend to do so often. And we wouldn't be reliant on him. Even the apostle Paul, he had his area, he had his thorn in the flesh that God said, I I can't heal that, Paul, because if I do, you're not gonna depend on me the same way you do right now. And that's ultimately not the best thing for you. 
But you got to know, God wants to bless you. He's not a sadist up in heaven who is like, I'm going to make your life miserable because it'll build character or something. That's not what he's doing. He wants to bless you. The only reason he doesn't in some areas is when not doing so is actually for the greatest good. Then Jesus reminds his disciples of the heart and character of their heavenly father. Verse 32, do not fear, little flock, for, and then I underline the whole rest of this, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I love that phrase, his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That just moves me because it's one of these places in scripture where we realize that father, as in father in heaven, is not just his title, it's who he is. He really loves us the way a perfect father loves his kids. He has affection for us. He's not just the stern disciplinarian. He has genuine affection for us as kids and him blessing us gives him pleasure, brings him joy. And any good father loves to give gifts to his kids. Every Christmas we go over our budget because I can't help myself. I love to bless my kids. And if you've given your life to Jesus, then you really are a son or a daughter of the father. You really are. Not in some abstract sense, but in a deeper, more real way than we can possibly imagine. Jesus says here, your father loves to give you good gifts. Here's the staggering thing about what Jesus is saying. Not only do we have a very real and perfect father in heaven who loves us, but he has a kingdom. And he wants us to spend our lives living for that kingdom because it's ultimately where we're gonna spend forever. But don't miss this. What are the father's plans for that kingdom? Jesus has just told us to give it to us. To give it to us. And these are the parts of the Bible that blow my mind because what it says is so staggering. Our first thought is, that doesn't sound right. Sounds blasphemous, sounds heretical. What did Jesus just say? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And if you study through the Bible, you know that Jesus told his disciples, he told the church that our destiny is to rule and reign with him. It's staggering that when we see him, we will be like him. Of course, Jesus is the king of kings, the name above all names on the throne above all thrones, but he has a kingdom that he, he wants to share with us. That's incredible. That's mind-blowing. And when those thousand years are up, when Jesus is done ruling and reigning on the earth and the story of this earth is finished, the book is closed, we're going to spend eternity in heaven and wherever else he has planned. We're going to rule and reign with him in that kingdom as well. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And here's what I hear when I read that. Your heavenly father can't wait to show you what the kingdom really looks like that he's asked you to spend your whole life living for. I believe he's genuinely excited because what Jesus seems to say in everything he teaches is, is the subtext, the message underneath everything is, guys, if you could see, if you could just see where you're going, if you could see what my father's house is like, I wouldn't even have to tell you to live for the kingdom and seek the kingdom. It would be so obvious. He can't wait for that moment. I can't wait either. So recognize this, we all pretty much know and believe that God plans on blessing his kids for eternity in heaven. Do we really believe that in the time between now and us arriving in heaven, God's taking a completely different approach and saying, you know, to get you ready to be eternally blessed, I'm going to cause you to live a life on earth without blessings, to teach you gratitude or something. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. As though if we're blessed in this life, we're gonna get to heaven and go, eh, it's okay. It's gonna blow our minds no matter what. So this is really a question of the character of God. Do you believe that the character of God is different in eternity than it is right now? Well, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if his heart is to bless in eternity, do we not think his heart is to bless in the here and now? Is he a different God in eternity? He's the same God. He's in eternity right now. Think about that. He's not changing locations. We're changing locations. 
He's a God who loves to bless his kids. That's his heart. That's his heart. We can trust the character of our Heavenly Father. He loves us. So write this down. The Father's heart is to bless his children. The Father's heart is to bless his children. And verse 33 is interesting because Jesus has been talking about what to do when you're worried that you don't have enough. Still in that theme, still talking about being worried that you don't have enough, Jesus says something strange. Verse 33, sell what you have and give alms. So he's saying sell what you have and give to those who need it. So even in that season of lack, when it seems like there's not enough and worry makes us want to hoard, even in that season, Jesus would say, you should still be asking what can I give rather than what can I take. It seems counterintuitive, but what Jesus is telling us is, hey, at the moments in life when money is fighting the hardest to be your highest priority, and you know when it's fighting the hardest? When you don't have very much of it. In those moments, when it wants to take over the throne of your life, let it go. Remember that it all belongs to the Lord. Don't stop asking the Holy Spirit what he wants you to do with your money. Don't stop viewing everything you have as being available to the Lord. That's how you fight back against being consumed by the love of money in those moments. You see, you can be consumed by money when you're rich. You can be equally consumed by the love of money when you're poor because it becomes just as important. There's a very real benefit to living this way, Jesus says, because if you do that, you will provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old and then underline a treasure in the heavens, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. So when you put your earthly wealth at the disposal of the Holy Spirit, you are turning it into eternal wealth, wealth that will last forever in the kingdom of God. And here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying if your money is tight right now, go find a way to give it all away. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it doesn't change the fact, and this is your next fill-in, that whether we have much or little, it always belongs to the Lord. Whether we have much or little, it always belongs to the Lord. We shouldn't stop making our money available to God just because we suddenly have less of it. We shouldn't stop being hospitable to people when things get tight financially. We're not generous because we're wealthy. We're generous because we want to reflect a generous God to the world around us. So are we really generous if we're only generous when we have enough to be generous with? I don't know that that's really what generosity is. So our generosity, our faith, our financial availability to the Lord, none of those things are meant to have anything to do with how much we do or don't have at any moment in time. They have everything to do with who God is, how he's asked us to live, and the fact that we view our whole lives as belonging to the Lord. That's what it means to follow Jesus. My whole life belongs to the Lord. Sometimes my whole life refers to more, and sometimes it refers to less. I have different amounts at different times, but the truth is my whole life belongs to the Lord all the time, all the time. And I'm always struck by, you remember the interaction where Jesus is across the street from the temple and he watches a widow go in and it says put her last might in, her last sense into the offering to the temple. And it's always hit me that Jesus, when he sees that, doesn't take off running across the street and say, stop, God knows you're poor, he doesn't need your money. He doesn't do that. Do you know why he doesn't do that? Because he knows that his Father in heaven is going to do far more through the faith and trust of that widow than he could ever do through the amount of money she put in. Jesus knows. He says, listen, I saw what she did, and you better believe my Father in heaven is going to take care of her. You better believe he's going to come through for her. There's no way he's not going to come through for her. Our trust in God with our money has nothing to do with whether we have a lot or a little. Being generous has nothing to do with whether we have a lot or a little. But there's an even greater reason to live that way. Verse 34, again, I'd underline the whole thing. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No qualifier, just a flat out statement of fact from the one person who is more qualified than anyone else to make a statement of fact about the human condition, our maker and creator, Jesus Christ. So please understand that here Jesus is talking about money. 
When it says treasure in the Bible, it's always talking about money or wealth. It's not talking about time. It's not talking about your talent. Treasure always means money, wealth, finances. And wherever you invest your money, it indicates what you care most about, what your highest priorities are. It's just a fact. If you were to look at our financial lives and where our money goes, you would conclude that Charlene and I love the Lord. We love the local church. We love the global church. We love our kids. We may not love responsible financial decisions very well, but man, we love God, we love the church, and we love our kids. And to this day, if there's something Charlene really wants, I will never ever respond with, let's see if we can afford that. I just start comparison shopping online and doing research because my attitude is, we're going to buy it and figure everything else later. I'm not saying it's smart or wise or responsible. I'm just telling you it's the way it is because I love her. She has my heart. She does. We're going to figure it out. So make a note of this, the way we spend our money reveals what we most care about. The way we spend our money reveals what we most care about. So Jesus tells us that because that is true, it's a fact, our heart follows our treasure, we are to invest financially in the kingdom of God and if we do that, our hearts are gonna begin to care more about the kingdom of God. You see, the world has it so wrong. One of the worst pieces of advice you could ever give another person is just follow your heart. That is terrible, terrible advice. The number of people whose lives have been completely ruined because they decided to just follow their heart is staggering. To make it clear, the Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So no, do not follow your heart. Be led by the Holy Spirit. What we want is for our heart, our emotions, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells us plainly, your heart is going to naturally care about the things that you invest in. So choose to invest in the kingdom of God and over time your heart will begin to follow your actions and you'll begin to care more deeply about the kingdom of God. If my treasure isn't in God's kingdom, then Jesus says, hey, then your heart's not in it either. Your heart's not in it either. And please realize this is not me talking. Jesus has taken here and takes throughout the Gospels a significant amount of teaching time. One third of all of his teachings are about money and stuff. If your treasure isn't in the kingdom of God, then you can talk a good game about everything else, but the bottom line is your heart's not there. Jesus isn't confused about this reality. He's not confused. And Jesus doesn't want us to be confused about this reality either. So make a note of this. If I want to lead my heart to love God's kingdom, if I want to lead my heart, lead my emotions to love God's kingdom, I'll have to put my treasure there first. Jesus doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Note the order. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your treasure. Your treasure doesn't follow your heart. You have to lead with your treasure and your heart will follow. So if you're waiting for your feelings to rise up one day and say, let's trust God with our money. I just have a huge overwhelming urge to do that. Just know it's probably never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. You have to elevate the word of God above your feelings and lead with your treasure. To be blunt, lest anyone be confused about this, the starting point is tithing, trusting and putting God first with the first 10% of your income. And I know this is the second week we've hit this and if it upsets you, I'm okay with that. Because this is what the Bible says. I'm, I'm not twisting this or contorting this to make it say something it doesn't say. So if you're upset and you decide to go to another church, that's fine. The Bible will still say what the Bible says, even at that church. And whoever you are, if you're gonna walk with God sooner or later, you've gotta submit to what the Bible says. There's just no way around it. And God's not gonna let it go. If it's the single biggest issue holding you back in your walk with him, you're probably gonna walk into another church and guess what they're gonna be talking about when you're there? Money. Or it's gonna feel like they're talking about money because God's not codependent. God's not up in heaven going, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this would offend you. I'm so sorry. I'll never bring this up again. I didn't realize it would bother you so much. So just know if it bugs you, God's never gonna let it go, ever. And if you're tired of God and the church talking about money all the time, you probably just need to start being obedient to the Lord with your money. And guess what? You'll find that seemingly, magically, the church will stop talking about money all the time. So I wish that was all I had to say about that. But 
As a Bible teacher, one of the most heartbreaking things I sometimes experience is a person who's present in a Bible study and they choose to walk away hearing something that the Bible didn't actually say. They choose to willingly deceive themselves so that they can hear what they wanna hear rather than hearing what the Bible actually says. And before we conclude today, I feel the need to stop and make sure we're absolutely crystal clear on something that again may be a little bit uncomfortable for some, but follow the logic with me here. Again, just we're, we're gonna think logically, not faith, not imagining, just basic logic. In verse 31, Jesus says, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. As we've discussed, Jesus is offering us an alternative deal in life. So the way the world works is that we have to pursue money in order to have our practical needs met. Jesus says, I want you to pursue God above money, so here's the deal I'm offering. Pursue God above money, and God will make sure all your practical needs are met too. It's a wonderful offer. But don't miss, it's contingent on one thing. What's the contingency? We have to seek the kingdom of God above everything else. It's a conditional promise. Those are the terms of the deal. If we refuse to seek the kingdom of God above everything else, we do not qualify for that deal. I hope I'm being clear on this because just three verses later, not another book, not even another chapter, just three verses later in the same conversation, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, you can read the whole Bible. You cannot go through the whole Bible and come to any conclusion that doesn't say treasure refers to money and wealth. You can't. When it's on the earth, it's money and wealth. That's what it is. So follow the logic with me. If Jesus has just said that your heart won't prioritize the kingdom of God unless your money prioritizes the kingdom of God, then logically, it is impossible for us to claim that we are seeking the kingdom of God first while ignoring it with our money. It's basic logic. You, you can't make those two things meet. Am I making a big leap? Am I twisting anything that Jesus has said, or is this just common sense based on the words of Jesus? The reason why I'm pushing this so hard is because I don't want anybody in the room to deceive themselves. I don't want anyone who's gonna to listen to this message to deceive themselves. I don't want anyone to hear this message and then leave this message thinking that you have a promise from God that he's gonna meet all of your practical needs even if you ignore him with your money because that's not the promise that he gives. If your treasure, if your money isn't in the kingdom of God, then you're not seeking the kingdom of God above everything else and you do not qualify for that promise. You don't qualify. And even if you disagree with me about tithing, even if you're someone who says, ah, I don't buy the tithing thing, then you have to open up your Bible and come up with an honest explanation for what Jesus is talking about when he talks about putting your treasure in the kingdom of God. You've got to explain that because Jesus says it plainly and your explanation has to line up with everything else the Bible says. And Again, if, if this makes you mad at me and you leave the church, I hope you'll tithe at the next church you go to because you really want to qualify for this promise from God. We have to actually deal with the words that Jesus is saying here. Otherwise, we're like people who, who read an article about the benefits of working out and just ignore the whole part about working out. Well, it says here I'm gonna lose weight, have more energy, experience positive emotions, and have a lower risk of heart disease. This is great. Yeah, but you read the part where it says you have to work out and watch your diet, right? Oh, that's not for me, but I will definitely claim those benefits. Praise God. <laughs> Let's not deceive ourselves. Jesus promises all our practical needs will be met if, we seek God's kingdom first, and Jesus takes the time to specifically point out he's referring to the financial arena. That's the deal. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here to tell you that's what the deal is. You can take it or you can leave it, but you cannot change it. You cannot change it. That's the deal. That's the deal. I wanna go back to Jesus' instructions from this teaching. He commanded us not to worry or have an anxious mind. That was a command. So if we're doing those things, we're actually walking in disobedience to Jesus. And I know that we love Jesus, and I know that we don't wanna do that, so, so how do we get rid of worry and anxiety? 
I want to suggest that a good place to start is just thinking on, meditating on the words of Jesus. If you're struggling with worry and anxiety, I want to encourage you, go through the parts of Luke 12 that we've worked through already here on Sunday mornings and really underline these promises from God. Consider the ravens, consider the lilies of the field. Are not two sparrows sold for just a couple of coins? Underline that in Luke 12. Begin to read it over and over every day till the point you get it memorized. And when worry and anxiety come over you, you just begin to recite those verses, the words of Jesus. If you're in a place where you can speak them out loud, speak them out loud. There's power in that. And what you're doing is you're combating a lie with the truth. You're conditioning your mind to say, no, no we're not going to do that. This is what the truth is. You're remembering that your heart is deceitful. Your heart is lying to you about what the most important thing in life is. And the solution is to speak from your spirit to your heart saying, no, this is the truth. This is what God says. Secondly, I think it would behoove us to remember every now and then that that we're in a spiritual battle all the time. We're in a spiritual battle and sometimes we need to ask the question, what am I gonna do to fight back? If you're dealing with anxiety, if you're dealing with worry, you need to hear you're in a battle. You need to fight. You need to fight. You need to not just lie there in the fetal position while Satan keeps kicking you on the ground. You gotta get up and fight. So what are you gonna do to fight back? We already said being in God's word is a way to fight back. It's an answer to the lies that he throws at you. So is prayer, and if you can't bring yourself to pray at home, then maybe as a way of fighting back, you need to get something new in your routine. Maybe you need to go for a a half hour walk at some point every day and just say, when I walk, I pray. When I walk, I pray. When I go out and do that, I know people are gonna look at me like a crazy person because I'm talking to myself, but you can always lie and say you've got a Bluetooth headset in or something like that. Whatever that routine looks like, You're not going to be free from that worry and anxiety till you get in the the routine of giving those things to God in prayer. Allowing the Holy Spirit to be your counselor. You know that's one of the few names he's given. He's the counselor. He's a great listener. Tell him everything that's eating you up. Confess your heart to God. The Bible says we're to cast all our cares, all our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Perhaps if you're in a real bind as well, it would be good to seek counsel and advice from some wise and spiritually mature people in the church. Those would be three ways to fight back against worry and against an anxious mind. Be in the word of God. Take it in deep enough that you can recite it when the enemy lies to you. Share your burdens with God every day in prayer. Find a way to do that. Even throughout the day, if you feel it building up, just talk to God. God, I feel like I'm going to explode right now. I don't know how I'm going to make it through these next five minutes right now. Just tell him that. and Let him minister to you. And seek out advice if you need advice. Let his word fill you with the truth. Then trust God. Trust him. Trust him. This is your final fill-in. Worry is assuming a responsibility God did not intend you to have. Worry is assuming a responsibility God did not intend you to have. He didn't design you so that you could be dropped on the earth and he goes okay have fun with that figure it out find food or die it's not how it works he's with us he's with us don't take on a responsibility God never intended you to have you know one thing that really changes your view on earthly wealth and treasure is a biblical understanding about what's going to happen in the future about where we're going. The more clear a picture you can have of where we're going, of what's coming in the future, the easier it's going to be to let stuff down here go. And you get a clear picture of where we're going. It changes everything. And here's the neat thing. Jesus is gonna begin to speak about that next week in the same chapter about his return. So you don't wanna miss that. I love talking about where we're going and what God has planned for the future. Remember that the cross and the empty grave Shout that God loves you. He loves you. He's not going to be a kind and loving God in eternity and not be one now. He's the same God. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much just that you love us, that you love us, God, and that we don't have to hope that you love us. We don't have to hold on to it as just a nice idea, but 
Your love became flesh and blood in your son, Jesus, and it walked the earth, it breathed our air. Your love took on a physical form, and your love was, was beaten and crucified and murdered for us. It doesn't get more real than that. Your blood dripped onto the earth that you made, and then you transcended all of that when you rose from the dead. And we rose with you, God. So when we say that you love us, we're not hoping you love us. We know that you love us. We know that you love us, God. You settled that forever on the cross. And so, Father, what we're asking your Holy Spirit to do this morning is to just open our eyes to the reality of spiritual truths, that your love is even more real than whatever emotional crisis we're going through whatever financial crisis we're going through, your love is more real. Your word is more true. And Father, we, we believe that this morning. But if that truth needs to make some distance, if it needs to make a journey from our head to our heart, Holy Spirit, we're asking you to work that this morning. We don't wanna be a people of little faith. We wanna be a people who can say, no, I've, I've seen too much. I've seen too much to not believe that God has got this. He's carried me through too much for me to not believe that he's gonna carry me through this too. He's been perfectly faithful my whole life and I cannot believe that that's gonna stop now. So Father, build our faith, grow our faith, not just so that we can have peace and be free of anxiety, but because by being free of worry and anxiety, you are glorified. You are glorified, and that's what we want. We want to live our lives in a way that says, man, I got a Father in heaven who loves me. That's why I put my head down on the pillow at night and I sleep well, because I've cast all my cares upon him, and I know that he cares for me. I know he's got me. I've seen too much. Lord, we bless you and we love you. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.